Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke's Gospel, as we return to our exposition of this Gospel. We'll pick up our reading in verse 28 and go up to verse 35 this morning. Uh, the preaching will mostly consider uh, the latter part from uh, verse 29 to 35. But to regain our context of where we have been, we will begin in verse 28. So please turn there if you would. And give your attention now, once more, to the reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 28. These are the very words of God. They are holy, inspired, and infallible. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God, being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation, and to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our holy God, we come to the preaching of the word, and we plead, Father, for your blessing upon it. Would you bless the minister who preaches that he would preach faithfully, that he would preach in a way that the word preached would be as the word of God to these people. And that can only happen when the man preaches in the spirit. So help your minister preach in the spirit and give the same spirit to the hearers that the very Holy Ghost that inspired this text would also be operating on every heart that is here, that all the minds here would be enlightened to the will and counsel of God. And to that end, Father, we pray that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that the faith of this congregation should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if fallen man were to write a catechism, its first question would be, what is the chief end of God? And the answer, as you might guess, would be something like this. The chief end of God is to glorify me and enjoy me forever. Fallen man wants God, but only as his puppet. He prays when he has nowhere else to go. This is why we have that saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. But what a condemnation that is against man. That man will only go to God when he needs something and when his life is on the line. Does fallen man ever pray naturally, hallowed be thy name? Does fallen man ever pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven? In other words, does fallen man ever pray, let me submit to your will, O God? No. If fallen man wants God, he wants God to be his puppet. And that's a twisted, sinful thing that reverses the creator-creature order. Last week, 
This past week, an unbeliever contacted me, and he wanted to talk to me. He was sorrowful over his adult son's mental condition. I grieved for him because it was very hard to hear the things that this son of his uh, was doing. Clearly, he was not right, more so than other sinners in some ways. And I listened to this man, and afterwards I asked him, why are you calling me? I asked him very gently, you know, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? And he said, I need comfort. I need comfort. And I said, I can give you no true comfort outside of Jesus Christ. Everything else is just platitudes. I said, you must know Christ for comfort. He is the God of all comfort. That he has come to bear the sinner's burden, their sins foremost. And if you come unto him, he said, he promised he will give you rest. He promises that those who come to him, he will work all things out for their good, even hard things. And that's the only comfort I can give you as a minister of the gospel. That's the only comfort any man can truly give you. You know his response. He became very chilly after that. He said, well, I have so much going on in my life right now, I cannot really focus on God. Friends, he wanted God's comfort, but not to submit to the God of all comfort. He, like us, came out of his mother's womb, catechized with fallen man's catechism. Well, friends, in our text today are actually religious men who refuse Christ's counsel. Instead of what he has to say to them, they want the Lord to march to their own tune and do exactly and precisely what they want of him. And when he does not, and he preaches the gospel to them, they craft childish excuses as to why they will never submit to God's own will. And so with that introduction, our theme is this, that men reject God's will because they want God to march to their own tune. Men reject God's will because they want Him to march to their own tune. And we must understand this, because even as believers, there is a residue in us, friends, that wants God to submit to us, because we really, truly struggle praying, Thy will be done. The third petition of the Lord's Prayer is not, My will be done, but Thy will be done. And we have to get that straight. So we consider our text under three heads found on your outline. First is the counsel, second is the rejection, and third is the justification. First, the counsel. Let's regain our context briefly. It's been quite a while since we've been in Luke. Last time we concluded uh, um, the Lord Jesus Christ's defense of John the Baptist and his ministry. He said, John, though he expressed some doubts in prison, was no reed shaken in the wind. He was not a soft man. He reminded us that he was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. He was the forerunner of Christ himself. While all the other prophets longed to see Christ's day, only John did in the flesh. He even had the privilege of baptizing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so after Jesus defended John's ministry, that's where we find ourselves now, the Holy Spirit inserts a parenthetical note in verses 29 and 30, speaking of his testimony of what uh, John the Baptist's ministry was. Listen to this. And all the people that heard him, speaking of John, and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. 
the Holy Ghost records there are two responses to John the Baptist's ministry. One group of people, the publicans, boys and girls, you remember these are tax collectors, they justified God. We'll get to that a bit later. But they admitted, essentially, that God was right about them, that they are sinners and they have need of grace. While the other group, the Pharisees and lawyers, we hear, rejected the counsel of God against themselves. Now, another way to translate the counsel of God is the will of God. The will of God. They did not reject, in other words, good advice. Sometimes that's how we use the word counsel today. But the counsel which comes from God is God's will for us. They rejected God's testimony and they rejected God's will for them. They rejected, and we have to get this straight, so I have a couple of uh, excursions this morning, and I, I hope you forgive me for them, but I think they're important. They rejected what is called, or theologians call, God's prescriptive will for them. His will where he prescribes what men are to do. Boys and girls, do you know where that will is found? It's found in the Word of God. It's found in the Word of God, which tells every man what God's will is for them. If you want to understand how we distinguish these things, you can look at Deuteronomy 29.29. Keep that text close by, child of God. Listen to it. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. That is a critical text for every Christian to understand and really take to heart. The revealed things are God's prescriptions to us. They are found in the word of God, and we are to do them. God's decretive will, which is his other will, his will of decree, is where he decrees what will come to pass. And that is what Deuteronomy 29.29 calls the secret things. Those are the things which belong to him and him only. And he says, you are not to pry into those things. For instance, you do not know what is going to happen each day. You might even have a very good guess, but you do not absolutely know what will happen each day. That is God's prerogative to dispose of. That belongs to God. That is his decretive will. The problem is that we often want to flip Deuteronomy 29, 29 around. We are so curious into God's secret will of decree. And we're always thinking about it. What is going to happen in my life? What is going to happen next? Or this or that or the other. But beloved, if you would just follow God's prescriptive will, his word, he says what throughout the Bible, you follow my word and I will take care of you. He says, you can rest in every providence. You never have to worry, am I doing the will of God or not? You follow the commandments of God, you submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ as found in the Bible and you can rest in the providence of God. It is the most freeing thing in the world, friend. To simply walk by faith in the word of God and not by sight, not constantly prying into the secrets of God. So many people are paralyzed when it comes to obedience because they say, well, if I follow God's word here, what's going to happen here? How am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose this friendship? Am I, what's going to happen? And then what happens is they're so worried about the secret decree of God that they refuse to obey the revealed will of God. It is so freeing. Friends, to simply follow God and let him dispose of providence, knowing he will bless you when you follow his will. This is the ultimate cure for anxiety, friends. 
This is why the Lord says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek ye first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You follow the will of God, and he will take care of your anxiety. Now, the second um, excursion a little bit out of the text is to show us that the text uh, demonstrates that God is pleased to give us his counsel through men. The Holy Spirit says here that the word of John the Baptist was the counsel of God. When the prophet preached to the nation, that was the very counsel of God, though it came through a human instrument. To not receive God's word then through John was not to reject John's counsel. Notice Jesus doesn't say, you rejected John's counsel. It is to reject God's counsel. It's the same way in your Bible, friends. Our Bible, yes, it was inspired when God used men like instruments, you know, men like Moses and Paul. For the prophecy came, not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 2 Peter 1.21 Though we have often names of men, here we have Luke in uh, this gospel, though often the name of men are here in the Bible, this is properly not the word of man, but it is the word of God. It is the will of God, and we are to submit to it. You don't submit to Luke here. You are submitting to God, because this is the word of God. And today, though, there are no more prophets. There's no more, there are no more men like John the Baptist. There are no more men like the Apostle Paul. Our Bibles are complete. Everything we need to know from God is found in this Bible. That day of John and the prophets, that's, that's over. Today, he has given us pastors, not prophets. But the child of prophecy, in other words, the descendant of prophecy, is preaching, which is what I'm doing right now. Preaching of the prophetic word of God. What is the commandment in 2 Timothy 4.2 to pastors? Preach the word. Preach the word. Yet pastors and their flocks, this is something we have to correct, have lost the grave nature of preaching. Even in our churches, even in Reformed churches, Um, We have lost that when a pastor faithfully preaches the word, if he is preaching the sense of the word of God, the preaching of the word must be received as the word of God. This was a Reformation principle that restored preaching to its central place in worship. That's why the central place in the worship service is the preaching of God. The second Helvetic Confession puts it very bluntly. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. A remarkable statement. Many are shocked by that. But our larger catechism says the same thing. In larger catechism, question 160, it says you must receive the word preached as the word of God. We shy away from this truth today. It was once well known in Reformed churches. Why do we shy away from it? Well, it is because our pulpits are filled with unfaithful and uncalled men. Preaching is a solemn thing, though. And today it is treated so lightly. It is the time for opinions. It's time to give a slideshow presentation or something like that. A man's here to entertain you and make you laugh. But preaching is a solemn thing, and ministers are meant to be thoroughly trained, examined, and kept accountable. Boys and girls, let me say this as you're young. Never attend a church where the minister is not held accountable by a presbytery for the content of his preaching. Preachers must 
fear God when they come to the pulpit because the right preaching of the word is to be received by God's people as the word of God. That's why John Knox saying that he preached in the sight of God who is examining every thought and every word from the pulpit. He said, I have never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. Because preaching is a solemn and dreadful thing. Now you might struggle, especially today, with the preaching of the word as the word of God. I'll pick this up in the gospel uh, worship series but uh, when I cover preaching, but I want to leave some helps for you, which are very helpful, were very helpful to me as I wrestled with this once. You might recall in Romans 10.17 when Paul said, Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He was referring to the preaching of the word. Verse 15 earlier said, and how shall they preach except they be sent? He is referring to the preaching of the word as the word of God. And so the preaching of the word is received as the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Their words, as they preached the word, was not to be received as the mere word of man, but as the word of God. I want to give you maybe John Owen's thoughts here, because he is very helpful in the relationship between scriptures and preaching. He says, quote, The word is like the sun in the firmament. Thereunto it is compared at large, Psalm 19. It hath virtually in it all spiritual light and heat. But the preaching of the word is as the motion and beams of the sun, which actually and effectually communicate that light and heat unto all creatures which are virtually in the sun itself. So you can see that relationship there. Uh, Let me sum up how one man's preaching was described. His preaching was said to be a projection of the eloquence of Scripture. That's all it is. True biblical preaching is a projection of Scripture. Now, This is where, of course, we could get into trouble. Is everything a man preaches to be received as the word? No. Your solemn duty is, as a hearer, to check if your minister's words are, in fact, the projection of scriptures, or if they are his opinion or his own desires. It was said of the Bereans, right? These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Acts 17, 11. See, even though Paul said that they received the word, they uh, searched the scriptures. So when I preach, or any man preaches, you must search the scriptures to see if these things are so. But if they are so, you are to receive it as God's own counsel to you, as the word of God. The larger catechism says we must only admit the truth preached as the word of God. If I or any other man preach the truth of the word, Take the sermon as the will of God for you. Let me give you an example. If I preach out of John 3, 7, and I say, you must be born again, and I spend the next 10 minutes exhorting you, you must not be a better person. You must be a new person. You need spiritual resurrection. You must be reborn from above, from heaven. You are dead to God in your sins. You must be made alive to God in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you are damned forever, cast into the lake of fire. And if your soul has been pricked by the Spirit in hearing this and you ask, what must I do to be saved? I say, look away from yourself and look unto Jesus Christ. Repent towards God and have faith in Jesus Christ. Believe on Him and thou shalt be saved, thou and thy house. All of that 
must be received as the very word of God to you. If it is faithful to the scriptures. If I preach that, you must receive it as God himself preaching to you. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says and 20. For that is a projection of the scriptures. That's all that is and must be received as God's will. And so if that was a digression, I think it's a necessary one because much of God's counsel to us comes through preaching. What that means is you must be under faithful preaching and you must receive it as God's will for you. Now with that, returning to our text, but understanding, I trust, what John was doing when he preached, what was the counsel of God given through John? This was several months ago, but Luke 3.3 3 summed it up. And he, John, that is John, came in, uh, into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So this is the counsel of God that the Pharisees had rejected. Repentance for the remission of sins. Hear that correctly. Hear that carefully. Repentance for the remission of sins. You have to hear that carefully because your flesh rails against this message, friends. Just hearing the command from God, repent, it causes your flesh to bristle, doesn't it? It caused the Pharisees to bristle. They refused it, being self-righteous. Yet why did so many sinners, why did so many gross sinners like these tax collectors and prostitutes respond to John? They saw the comforting end of repentance, the remission, the forgiveness of sins. A full pardon from God. That'll be our theme next time. That sinners who see how great their sin is, how awful their sin is, how many their sins are, more than the hairs on their head, they say. They love this word that says, repent for the remission of sins. And they, instead of bristling at it, they are captivated by it, and they adore the God who gives this gift of repentance to them, so that repentance becomes to them the response of saving faith and even a continual habit in the believer. They say, I don't have to work off my sin debt. I don't have to go and be good. I simply have to believe on Jesus and turn from my sin and turn to God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, and it becomes a beautiful thing to them. They see that repentance is the gift of God, and it brings you comfort in Christ. You know, in Isaiah 40, where John's ministry of repentance was prophesied, where he is prophesied to be that voice in the wilderness, John said to God, uh, uh, God said to John, rather, this is your work in Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double, meaning more than enough for all her sins. That's what his message of repent and believe is meant to do. It's a message of comfort for sinners. That's what repentance is. That's why the great chapter on repentance, Luke 15, has a father run out to kiss his prodigal who repents. What is that teaching us? That when we repent, God the Father comforts us in repentance, forgiving us freely and fully. All is forgiven. All you have to do is admit your fault to God. Admit, I am a sinner. God have mercy on me, the sinner. Turn from your sin, return to God, and follow Him. So friends, be swift to repent 
And God swiftly meets you to comfort you. That is what that man who called me on the phone last week needed. The Father's embrace through repentance. And all else would be taken care of him. Even if his son never was healed, he would have true comfort. But this message of grace was rejected by the Pharisee. So let's consider their rejection in our second heading. In verses 31 to 32, Jesus uses a striking illustration to characterize the Pharisees. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation, and to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace, and calling one to another, and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. He says they are like children, sitting in the marketplace, playing their flute, playing their pipe, and they expect God's men to dance for them. They're like children who play act and they mourn, crying with, uh, with fake tears, and they expect God's men at the drop of a hat to cry for them. But remember, these men who are coming to them, John and Jesus, are delivering the message of God as God's instruments. But what is really happening here is this. Sinners want God to dance to their tune, and that is why they reject his will. They want God to dance. They want God to mourn. You do what I want, God. That is your temptation as well, friends. Your flesh is not going to care what God has to say. Jesus says, worship me in spirit and truth, meaning worship me as I want, yet you say, Jesus, I want you to be worshipped the way I want. You need to submit to my tune. Boys and girls, Jesus says, marry a believer only. Yet you say, Jesus, would you bless the marriage of the person that I want? On and on it goes, friends. That is your flesh. It wants to tell Jesus to dance or cry for you. Whatever you want. What you must remember is Jesus sets the tune and we dance to his tune. He is the piper, not us. He tells you to cry over your sin You cry, friend, and you mourn over it. You be pricked in the heart. He then tells you to sing and rejoice over his salvation. So you rejoice and praise him for salvation. You submit to his will in the scripture. What it says, he expects you to do. He never does what you want him to do in the flesh. Their childishness. And rejecting God's counsel is shown in how they receive John and Jesus. Verses 33 and 34. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. In other words, they justify their rejection of God's message by rejecting the messenger. And what you have to understand is that the message of John and Jesus were actually the very same message. John preached, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3 verse 2. Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4 verse 17. They were different people, yes, but they preached the same message. John was more ascetic. He ate honey and locusts and dwelt in the wilderness. He did not, as the text says, eat bread or drink wine. He seemed more severe to them. And they accused him of what? Being a demoniac. He hath a devil. As an aside, this is the world's tactic, friends. They also said the same thing about Jesus. 
They said of Jesus, he hath a devil and is mad. John 10, verse 20. This is where we get our expression, they demonized someone. They demonized him. Boys and girls, it'll happen to you if you stand for God's truth. You are going to be demonized. But if they will demonize the most gracious person who ever lived, the most gracious man that ever lived, they will demonize you without hesitation, for you are not greater than your master. But on this occasion, their attack on Jesus was that he came eating and drinking. You know this, just back in Luke 5, Jesus went to feast, thrown by sinners like the one Levi threw for him. So this is the opposite of their attack on John. They said, we don't like this either about this man. They said of Jesus, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. Now, though Jesus ate and he drank, he did so with self-control. He was never a glutton or a drunk. And often we leave this text there. But you, don't have, you have to understand what they are actually saying here. This is a damnable thing, for they are citing the law of God here. They are citing God's law that condemns obstinate sons that do not obey their parents. Deuteronomy 21.20, this is what the parents say to, to the rulers. This, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. This is what they are calling Jesus. What was the penalty? Death by stoning. How blasphemous. How blasphemous to ascribe the breaking of the law of God to Jesus to say that he is the disobedient son when he is the only one who can say that the father has said on his own authority, I am the obedient son. Thou art my beloved son. In thee, I am well pleased. These people, though, didn't care what God thought about Jesus. They put themselves in the place of the parents in Deuteronomy 21.20 and said of Jesus, he will not obey our voice. See, it's the same thing. They want Jesus to dance to their tune. And if he won't, then he is going to be considered the disobedient son. And at the end of the day, what you have to see is these are all excuses. Because there is this great spectrum, right, between John the Baptist and Jesus. Their personalities are in some ways very divergent. And what you have to understand is it didn't matter whether the message came through a man like John or a man like Jesus. One was more reclusive, one was more sociable. Two ends of the spectrum, but it did not matter. They hated the message and the men were excuses as to why they should not receive it. The men were excuses as to why they would reject the will and counsel of God. They did not want to hear from God, so they attack his men. That's what happened to every prophet of God, as you well know. Man hates God's message, so they killed the prophets. Why? They cannot lay hands on God, so they lay hands on his men. And it wasn't until the Son of God came in the flesh where they could lay hands on God, so to speak. And did they listen to him? No, they killed him too. Jesus teaches you that in the parable of the vineyard owner in Luke 20. They cried out to God in the flesh against him, crucify him, crucify him, take this one away from us. Be wise. This is the response of your flesh as well when you hate the counsel of God. When you have a minister, you're going to say, oh, this man is too severe. This man is too syrupy. This man has a hickish accent. This man is far too eloquent. This man wears a suit. This man wears a Geneva gown. Your flesh is never satisfied, friends. There's nothing the man could do if he is faithful to the text to please your flesh. 
But insofar as law and gospel are preached faithfully, you must receive the message, no matter the manner of the man preaching it. So long as he is qualified and he is godly, your flesh, remember this, hates God's counsel, and it will deceive you into rejecting it. Your flesh hates being exposed as a sinner who continually needs the grace of God. Your flesh hates needing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to cover your sin, that you have to be humbled before God. Your flesh hates all of that, and it's going to find excuses as to why to reject the message. Whenever you begin to mock or attack God's messengers, you need to ask yourself, is it because my flesh despises the message, or is it because he is actually not faithful to the text? Sin is a very deceitful thing. We've talked about this in Hebrews 3.13, which says, Do not be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We are often deceived by sin. Why? Because we are not wise to it. Today's wisdom for you, brethren, is to know that you will reject the counsel of God because you will shoot the messenger because you don't like God's message. When Paul told Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season, he warned him of this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. Don't ever think that that text isn't speaking of your flesh. It's a warning for all of you, friends. Your flesh wants teachers to approve your lusts, and you will hate men who preach against it. Remember, not too long ago, we considered Ahab and Micaiah. When Jehoshaphat asked if there was a true prophet in Israel, Ahab said of Micaiah, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he never prophesied good unto me, but always evil. Second Chronicles 18.7, he sends Micaiah into the dungeon. Why? Because Ahab always wants to be affirmed in his sin. And so he kept false prophets around who would coddle him. You will too. You will too. But what was Ahab's end? He was killed. And worse than that, he now rots in hell forever. And so were the Pharisees who rejected God's counsel. Don't let the same happen to you, friend. You need to embrace the whole counsel of God. What did the apostle say? I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. And surely, you heard this, many people mocked him, right? He is more weighty in his letters, but in person, not so much. But see, the problem is they were again evaluating the man and not the message. And that's what happens so much in our flesh Embrace the counsel of God. You don't, and I want you to embrace it by faith, and I want to be, you to be encouraged in this. You, you don't have to be super intelligent to know the Bible. It just takes faith in the Lord and diligence. We'll cover that this evening. Notice who rejected God's counsel as a counterpoint. The lawyers. The lawyers. The so-called experts of the law. But the simple tax collectors and prostitutes, they embraced it. And they were given the grace to recognize that I am a sinner, and that is the difference, the grace of God. Come to the word, all of you. It says what? The, the promise of God in Psalm 19.7 is that the word of God makes wise the simple. And for those who are entrusted with the word, you and I must not compromise God's message 
of ministers, let me say, once a congregation tells a minister to dance to their tune, he is finished. Absolutely finished. In the sight of God, for sure. The glory has departed Ichabod. Same for elders here. We must not fear as being thought of as severe men for telling our people what God requires of them, if it comes from the word of God. No, whether you are more gregarious like Jesus or more severe in some ways or thought of as more severe or reserved like John, no matter our personality, we must tell our people plainly what God requires of them. And know that you will always be critiqued for style over substance. Same for you all, congregation. You all have opportunities to minister the word informally, whether to family or friends or even strangers. You yourself must never, never fall to the temptation of compromising the message of the word to appease a sinner. All of us must stop worrying about what fallen men think about us. This text, what does it show you? It is impossible, friends, to win sinful men through outward means. Impossible. If you are friendly to sinners, they don't want you. If you are harder on men, they don't want you either. I can change my delivery, I can change my dress, but the flesh of sinners is never satisfied until what? I change the message of God. And that is what has happened in the majority of American churches. At some point, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People has replaced the Bible. To influence people carnally, though, friends, is not the gospel's aim. The gospel's aim is to turn sinners to God in Jesus Christ. It is to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith. Acts 26.18. Now that, to we who believe, is the most marvelous message in the world. So it may shock you that men don't want to hear it. They don't. And if you start to waver from that because they just don't want to hear it, and you start to seek to influence people for the gospel in Dale Carnegie's manner, you are the one who is being influenced. And you are being influenced away from God, and you are compromising the message of the word. And you are going to find, not that their soul is saved, but your soul is in peril. Because you are changing the message of God. Today, you see that even in so-called Reformed churches, men no longer preach that sin is wicked. For this root reason, it is against a holy God. But instead, they preach things like this, that sin is against human flourishing. Sounds so good to sinners. To try to entice sinners uh, to not sin so that they would flourish and their society would flourish. Instead of preaching Sin is wicked against God, and you must repent of your sin against God. You must say, against thee and thee only have I sinned, O holy God. They don't want to say it, because sinners don't want to hear it. And so they replace that message, which is biblical, with human flourishing. A wicked thing. You need to beware. It's subtle. You are going to be tempted to compromise God's will to please men. And in so doing... While you might please sinners, you are going to displease God. You must fear God and not man. With that, let's turn to our final heading, the justification. So though the Pharisees rejected the counsel of God against them, many sinners by God's Spirit were convicted that they needed repentance. In verse 29, we read that the publicans justified God. Now, God doesn't need to be justified by you, right? He has no need. He is the judge. 
He knows what is right. He vindicates himself. He does not need anyone's vindication. On the judgment day, no man is going to say God was wrong. They will admit, though they grit their teeth, that God was right about them and that he is just. And they will do it with anger, yes, but they will see for sure that God was right. He doesn't need anyone's vindication for his own self-esteem or something like that. No, friends, you must justify God to glorify God and for your own good. You must reform your own thinking to match God's message. You need to have your mind renewed and transformed to admit whatever God says in the Bible is right. Through John, God said, you are all sinners and you must repent. And uh, this group of sinners here, these publicans, they justified God and said what? Essentially this, though not in these words in the text. Yes, Lord, I admit it. I am a sinner. Your words against me are right. You are absolutely right about me. I am a terrible sinner. I cheat. I swindle. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I do not love you above all other things. In fact, I was willing. We heard this about the publicans, the tax collectors. They were willing to be thrown out of the synagogue, excommunicated, so to speak, in order to chase their profession. And they refused to worship God, being kicked out. But these, they justified God by repenting of their sin and laying hold of the grace and comfort of God extended to them through the preaching of John. And that is how they justified God. And you see that they justified God, and you must too, not by just your mind accepting what he says, but you must also submit to it. You see here the action that follows. The sinners who accepted the counsel of God showed it outwardly by being baptized. You see, the the baptism did not cleanse them, but it is a sign of their justifying God, saying, yes, God is right about me. I am a sinner. Uh, And they do it publicly for the whole world, for the whole nation to see. All these Jewish people who uh, many of the, the much of the nation thought just being Jewish was enough. But they admitted in the sight of all men, God is right. I am a sinner, not much better than the Gentiles. And that is what baptism signifies, right? It's a public declaration in a way. God is right. God is right. I need the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way for me to be reconciled with God. This is what my baptism represents. And this is why the child of God we find in in the Bible that baptism, it seems inseparable in some ways from a, a convert converting because it is an admission that God is right about me. And that's why if there are any here who have not been baptized, but uh, are, uh, you know, you say, you believe the gospel, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to be baptized, friend. You, There's no such thing as a private Christian, in other words. Baptism is a public declaration, I am a sinner, and I need Christ. And if you were uh, baptized as an infant, right, You are, in other words, your parents were submitting to the will of God for you, and you are bound now to submit your life to Jesus Christ. Your baptism obligates you publicly. Like this last Lord's Day, there was a uh, a couple Lord's Days ago, there was a a young child who was here being baptized, and their parents, her parents are obligated to raise her in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's what that baptism signifies. God, you're right. This is a covenant child, and I must raise this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So, 
All that said, you notice the Pharisees aren't baptized, but the converts here are baptized, those who admit God is right, those who justify God. And so you can take that principle of them responding by baptism and, and, and extend it to every area of your life. Last Lord's Day we heard in Hebrews 5 that you are not just to hear the word, but do the word, right? And so when you hear the word, uh, you don't justify God if you just say, okay, that sounds good, that sounds right, I guess God is right about this. No, you don't justify God really until you actually execute the word, being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. That's why John said, repent and be baptized. These people were baptized. God's word says much about his will for you. For instance, God's word says this, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. How do you take that word? Okay, you might say, great, I am supposed to live a holy life unto God. But you do not justify God until you actually go and do it. Until you say, I am going to put legs to your word. By your grace, Father, I will go and live a holy life. Will you justify the Lord today? Will you live for holiness separated unto the Lord? Or will you, like the Pharisee, in your own way, reject God's counsel and refuse to justify God? In every area of life, you must say, no matter what, what is God's counsel for me here? In every area of life, you must say, to the law and to the testimony. Why? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3.16-17. God gave you this book to perfect you, to reprove you, to correct you, and to instruct you. You reject it, or any portion of it, and you reject God's will. To not obey it is to not justify God. And so Jesus says in verse 35, Wisdom is justified of all her children. And who is the wisdom of God? In 1 Corinthians 1.24, it is Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. If you are wise, if you are a child of God, you need to admit Christ is right about you, that you are a sinner in need of grace. Paul told Timothy this, From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.15. That is what the child of wisdom, a child of Christ, is like. In that, let me conclude with something the Pharisees charged Jesus with. They called him a friend of publicans and sinners. You know, they meant that saying for evil. But God meant it to draw you close to Jesus. He is truly and really the sinner's best friend. He could not be the friend of the righteous. Think about it. Why? There is none righteous. No, not one. But Jesus is still the friend to only one kind of sinner, the repentant sinner, the one who admits God is right about themselves, the the sinner who cries like the old publican, the old tax collector, God have mercy on me, a sinner. If you're not a Christian yet, you need to admit you are a sinner. That's God's counsel. You are a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What you must not do is allow your shame, your shame over your sin, keep you from Jesus Christ. 
Next week, as the text rolls on, maybe you can read it this Sabbath, you will meet a very sinful woman that Jesus forgave oh so very much. He proves himself the friend of sinners. Just admit, friend, to the friend of sinners that you have need of the mercy and grace of God, and he will be the best friend, the best friend you could ever have. The scandal to the Pharisee was Jesus received sinners and saved them. He saved sinners as sinners before they were, in the Pharisee's eyes, externally righteous, before they had cleaned up speech, before they had a cleaned up dress, before their outward behavior was cleaned up. But Christ says that a man like the Pharisee who looks so pristine on the outside with an outward righteousness, which is no righteousness, he called such men whitewashed tombs looking so well on the outside, but filled with death. Dead men inside. But God says he justifies the ungodly. That is who he justifies, Romans 4, 5. And he does that by giving faith to believe the gospel hope that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved, all, any, no matter what kind of sinner, they are saved. Unbeliever, he is the friend, the friend of sinners who will come to him humbly. Psalm 138, 6. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. In the end, the Pharisee was damned because they would not humble themselves, would not admit like prostitutes and publicans that they needed the grace of God themselves. And so many repentant prostitutes, murderers, homosexuals, and fornicators have entered heaven through Christ, while so-called religious men are now burning in hell. And for you who believe, as you struggle with your sin, as we all do, when you find yourself unable to look up like the psalmist, my iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore, my heart faileth in me. Therefore, my heart faileth me. When your heart fails you, when, when, when your sins are so black and, and dark and you don't know where to go, you, you need to say, the Lord has promised that I am a sinner and yes, Jesus is the friend of sinners. And I must go to him. I can't go to myself. I can't go to anyone else. I can't go to my pastor even. I must go to Jesus. Because he has promised he is the friend of sinners and he has promised he will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And what you have to understand is what I am preaching now is not the counsel of man. This is the counsel of God. This is why we say in the Bible in Romans 10, citing Isaiah, how beautiful is the good news that comes through men who preach. God says Jesus is the friend of sinners. Now think of that. This is the will and counsel of God. Oh, what a tyrant he is, isn't he? <laughs> he says that he has given his only begotten son to be the friend of sinners. That is God's will. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
2 Corinthians 5, 19-21. Dwell on that text. Drink that text richly. Once again, though, it shows us that the word faithfully preached is God's pleading to you. It is the word of God through a man. And he beseeches you, be ye reconciled to God. He sent his son to take upon himself the sins of all who would believe so that they might become the righteousness of God in him. This is not the word of man. This is the word of God. And take it as such. Never be like the proud Pharisee and reject the counsel of God. Instead today, friend, what you must do is is justify God and embrace his will for yourself. Prove yourself a child of wisdom. Next week, we will meet a humble, sinful child of wisdom who loved much because she was forgiven much as the text unfolds and proves the doctrine that we have just heard. But until then, let us rise for prayer and go to the Lord. Almighty God, we have heard your word. We pray that it has been the truth of the word that was preached. Would you help sinners receive it as the very voice of God to them, that they would flee to Christ today and be saved? And would all of us, Father, Would you help all of us, enable all of us to take your counsel and submit to it thoroughly? That we would repent of our sin, that we would live sanctified lives of holiness unto God, that we would always look to Jesus Christ when our sins uh, seem so dark, that we would cry out to the friend of sinners and believe the promise of God that those who come to Jesus you will never in any way cast out. Oh God, if there are any here who don't know the Redeemer, Would this be the day of salvation for them? Give them faith to believe the precious gospel and help them justify you, O God, and admit to you in this life that you are right, lest they find in the life to come they do so with weeping and gnashing of teeth. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.